Good evening, everybody. Um, my name is Martin Anthony. I'm head of the mathematics department here at the LSE. Uh, thank you for coming to this public lecture organised by our department. A little bit of housekeeping. Um, no fire alarm drill is tested, so its uh, test is planned. So if it does go off, please evacuate the, the theatre following the stewards. Um, our speaker will talk this evening for around an hour, and then there will be plenty of time afterwards for questions and answers. The lecture is being recorded, and it's hoped that a podcast of the event will be made available online soon. Uh, please put your mobile phones on silent. Don't turn them off, because we hope that you'll be tweeting madly, and the hashtag is hashtag LSEMaths. So I'm delighted this evening to welcome as our speaker, Professor June Barrow-Green. June is Professor of History of Mathematics at the Open University, and also, I'm delighted to say, has recently become a visiting professor in our own department here at LSE, where she's been teaching a course to our undergraduates on the history of mathematics in economics and finance. June is an eminent historian of mathematics. Her work has focused largely on the late 19th and early 20th centuries, although she occasionally makes a foray uh, back into earlier times. Among her particular interests uh, is the history of women in mathematics. And uh, we're very pleased that June was actually the inaugural speaker at our Women in Mathematics seminar that we started this year. June has published widely and uh, notably was an editor of the Princeton Companion to Mathematics, a very impressive volume, if ever you've seen it. June is a well-known leading figure in the mathematical community generally. She currently sits on the Council of the London Mathematical Society, is a former president and currently sits on the Council of the British Society for the History of Mathematics, and she is also vice-chair of the International Commission on the History of Mathematics. June has been very much involved in public engagement and in raising the profile of mathematics, working on both television and radio, and she was recently heavily involved in the development of the Winton Gallery, uh, the mathematics gallery that opened at the Science Museum last December. So who better to talk to us this evening than June Barrow-Green? Please join me in welcoming her. Thank you very much uh, for that uh, introduction. Um, it's a great pleasure to be here. Um, and um, thank you all for, for coming. Um, I hope um, that I haven't got some of you here on false pretenses. Um, this deliberately sort of ambiguous title, um, Mathematicians at War. I, if you've read the abstract, you'll know it's mathematicians and what mathematicians did during the First World War. It's not mathematicians' pistols at dawn um, with each other. Um, so, um, so anyway, so my talk is going to be on um, what, what British mathematicians um, did basically during the First World War, how they contributed to the war effort and how the war affected them. Um, both in their careers and how the war affected um, mathematics. Um, so let me start, right, so just an opening slide. Um, so in January 1915, Sir George Greenhill, who was the professor, uh, well, erstwhile professor of mathematics from the Royal Military Academy in Woolwich. Um, he'd retired from there in, in 1908. But he was president of the Mathematical Association, um, still 
institution still going today. It's the Association for Mathematics Teachers. And he gave a presidential address, um, in, which he entitled Mathematics in Artillery Science. And this address got very wide publicity. It was reproduced in full in the Times, in uh, other newspapers, in Nature, and in the Mathematical Gazette, the journal of the um, uh, uh, Mathematical Association. And in this address, um, George Greenhill said, it is a mathematical war. Um, and this was a kind of quite a, a, a new way of thinking, or one might think a different way of thinking about the war. Um, but what evidence did he have for that? Well, one of the things was that he had, before the war, he'd been to Germany, and he had been to see how... Um, the Germans were educating their soldiers and he was very impressed with the amount of science that was being, was being done and, and in contrast to what uh, the soldiers in, um, and the military in, in Britain were learning. Um, and he, he discusses this in, this, um, in his talk and he also gives sort of just some elementary examples of um, where mathematics can be used in war, just to kind of give the flavor of it. He said, well, you know, the theory of sound, if you understand the theory of sound, that will tell you how near you can afford to stand to a gun when it's being uh, fired so that um, you aren't deafened by it. Or, for example, you can use Euclidean geometry. If you have a fragment of a shell, you can use Euclidean geometry to work out what the actual caliber of that shell is. And he went on and gave other sort of examples. But was it really a mathematical war? Was he alone in thinking and, and putting it forward in that way? Well, there were one or two other people who were explicit um, in this way. Um, right very, very soon after the outbreak of war, the American journalist Herbert Kaufman wrote an article in the Times where he said the range of weapons and modern tactics have set the struggle upon a basis of mathematics. And then later we um, get the uh, reminiscences of a soldier, um, Private Gladden of the Northumberland Fusiliers, um, when he's describing the assault on Messine Ridge. And he just says, the poor devils caught in that terrible cataclysm had no chance. Yet what chance was there for anyone in that war of guns and mathematics? Um, even in a hospital, we see a nurse writing, in 1915, a world apart, a world of insufferable space and agonizing time, ruled over by some inhuman mathematics. So what did all of these people mean by mathematics? Well, of course, we'll never know precisely. Um, but I think um, we can think about perhaps with some of them, I mean, like the soldier, um, the numbers involved, I mean, the sheer scale of things, the action, you know, the, the, there's mathematics in that, in, organize, in the organization. Um, and um, probably Herbert Kaufman was thinking more about, he recognized that technology was going to be used um, in the war, and technology um, requires mathematics. Um, quite what the nurse meant, it's difficult to say. But... What I hope to show you with some of these examples that actually mathematics was an important, played an important um, role in the war and British mathematicians really contributed to helping um, win uh, the First World War. Of course, one can argue about whether really anybody won the First World War, but um, that's not what I should be talking about. 
Um, one of the really key things about the First World War, it's the first major conflict to be fought in the air. And um, I've put on this slide a few figures. These are kind of debatable. You see different figures in different places, but they're kind of, I think, they give a, they give a pretty reasonable idea of how um, area power grew and developed in the war. We start off 130 military aircraft in service, by 1918, 22,000 military aircraft in service. They can fly much faster, they can fly much higher. Um, at the beginning of the war, people thought that you would only ever use a plane for reconnaissance. That was what they thought um, uh, uh, planes would be used for. Of course, they quickly realized that they could be used for more than that, and by the end of the war, of course, they were being used for bombing, raids, and, and shooting, and so on. Um, so I, it, it is really such a, a, a really key factor um, in, in the war, um, this growth of aerial power. Um, and mathematicians were involved in this in, in two ways, actually. They were involved in getting these planes up in the air, and they were also involved in shooting them down. Not the same ones, hopefully, <laughs> but... So they were involved in um, the sort of development of aerodynamics and then they're also involved in anti-aircraft gunnery. Um, and these are two areas which I will expand on. Um, so starting, about, starting with the development of, um, sort of aeronautics and, and so on, um, one of the centres where mathematicians show up is at the Royal Aircraft Factory in Farnborough. This uh, institution, it started off as the Royal Balloon Factory in Aldershot, moved to Farnborough in 1905, got renamed the Royal Aircraft Factory, and then at the end of the war it was renamed the Royal Aircraft Establishment, because in fact factory was really a bit of a misnomer, because it was never meant to be somewhere for churning out lots and lots of aeroplanes. It was, it was somewhere where the development um, of, of planes, uh, where the experiments were going on, where they were trying to improve planes to um, make them fly high, higher, longer, and, and so on. Um, so, um, and they did build planes there, but actually it was largely um, the place where, where the development uh, went on. Um, and so this picture here is, is a picture of the um, factory in, actually in the war. It's a bit difficult to see, but just down in the... Um, in that far corner there, those of you near the front might be able to see just a couple of small planes on the ground um, down there. Um, so, who was there? Well, um, this is just a, a bunch of people um, who were either trained as scientists or mathematicians. I won't have captured them all here. Um, and um, E.T. Busk, um, who went to the aircraft factory in 1912. He was a Cambridge um, graduate. He had done uh, very well in the mathematical tripos and uh, was by all accounts an uh, extremely talented mathematician. And he was responsible for designing, um, one of the people who helped to design one of the first really stable aeroplanes, the BE-2C, BE standing for Blériot Experimental. Um, but Busk was killed um, in an accident in 1914, just after the outbreak of the war. And that had um, really quite an effect on what happened at the factory from the point of view of the scientists and the mathematicians getting into the air. Because 
um, it was realized that um, it was safer to keep them on the ground if you wanted um, the development to progress. Um, and it, in fact, in the war, huge numbers of planes were lost in accidents. And, and all the people here who's, um, uh, you can see Keith Lucas who died in 1916, David Pinson who died in 1918, um, as well as they died in accidents. They didn't die in, in conflict. Um, and I'll say, I'm going to say a bit about one or two of these people. Um, but it was, a real, it was a real tension because the mathematicians started to get frustrated with the fact that they were having to rely on the pilots bringing them the data back. So the planes were going into the air and they were wanting to get the data from the pilots. And they were, because the pilots didn't know what the data was being used for and that pilots also, it very much was the case that people tended to think, you know, you flew on instinct. Why did you need the mathematicians? There was a sort of, ten, there was a tension there. So the mathematicians wanted to get into the air. Um, despite the danger. And of course they were young. They were, I mean, flight, I mean, it was very exciting. Um, so it wasn't really until 1915 that they actually got back into the air again. They were able to persuade the powers that be that they needed um, to fly. Um, so, um, and here we have um, a picture of, of some of them. I've circled the, the ones who are the real sort of mathematicians in the picture here. So on the left wall, we've got um, Hermann Glauert, and he was one of the ones who actually definitely didn't want to fly. He, he kept his feet very firmly on the ground. He always said he didn't want to fly. G.P. Thompson, uh, his father was J.J. Thompson, who was, um, who'd won a Nobel Prize for the discovery of the electron. Um, uh, Frederick Lindemann, uh, some of you may be familiar with him. He was um, later on in uh, World War II. Um, he was a scientific advisor to the government. He was a great friend um, uh, of Churchill's and he became Lord Charwell. Um, extremely bright, extremely bright. Um, G.P. Thompson, I should have said, he later after the war, um, in, I think in 1937, goes on and wins a Nobel Prize himself. Um, uh, on the lower step there, David Pinsent, I'm going to say something about him. Um, and um, up there, Farron. Then this was a bunch of really extraordinarily bright people. Oh, Frederick Aston, who was on the right wall, right in the front there, he was another Nobel laureate, won a Nobel Prize for Chemistry in 1922. So we've got an extraordinarily um, bright group of people here working on um, aircraft development. So one of the people um, I'm going to talk about, and I would like to um, say thank you, I've got a, a research student, Tony Royal, who is actually working in great detail on um, uh, mathematics and particularly the kind of relationship between engineering and mathematics in this period, and particularly as it relates to aeronautics. And he actually was a former pilot himself, so he's very... Um, knows rather more about um, some of the dangers than I do. So um, some of this more detailed uh, work, I'm very grateful to Tony for having uh, provided me with information. Um, now, David uh, Hume Pinsent, another uh, extremely bright uh, mathematician, um, ends up at the Royal Aircraft Factory by sort of accident. One of the things I also should say is that most of these people that I'm going to be talking about end up doing their mathematics in, for the war effort 
by accident and not by design from the point of view that mathematicians were not mobilized, not in the way that um, uh, physicists and chemists and things were. And, and as the war progressed, of course, um, people began to realize and understand how much more this war was a scientific war um, uh, compared to anything that had gone before. I mean, think of things like poison gas and so on. Um, but the mathematicians were sort of not, nobody sort of saw them really as a group um, uh, to be kind of put into places where they could really do um, useful work. And so a bunch of them do end up, as you'll see, in um, doing extremely um, important work, but, um, but by their own uh, determination, really, rather than, than that of the powers that be. Um, so Pinson was a good friend of Wittgenstein's um, and Wittgenstein in fact dedicated his tractatus to Pinson and was devastated when, when Pinson was killed in a, in a flying accident um, and Pinson wasn't allowed to enter the army um, because he was, he was very small and he was rather, rather frail which is why he sort of ends up at the Royal Aircraft Factory and while he's there he uh, works on slipstream velocities, that's what's going on behind the wings, and on tail loading because the, they needed to understand um, how um, the weights are, are on the tail from the point of view of the stability of the aeroplane. And there's a quote I have here from, from Thompson. I mean, he talks about Pinson as being the most brilliant man of my year, amongst the most brilliant I've ever met. Now, Thompson was no slouch. So, um, you know, Pinson was somebody really special. Um, and um, we're very fortunate we've got some photographs, and this is a, a photograph of Pinsent with Farron in uh, de Havilland 1. And actually, if we sort of zoom in on it, we can see Pinsent in the front cockpit with instruments. And, um, and in fact, people really loved flying with Pinsent because he was so small, they could put more instruments in um, the cockpit with him. So he was a very popular pilot. Um, and you can see there, I mean, he's the, the instruments are about as big as, um, as big as he is. So the sorts of things he did, it's a bit difficult to see from this picture, but this is um, um, a static tail load test. And you can see this is where they've got the load on the, on the tail of the plane, and they're just loading it and loading it to see um, what, um, uh, how, much, how much weight it can take. Um, and, and this one here, you can see this is an aeroplane that's actually upside down, and they're testing, testing the wing. Um, and you can see all the stuff that's fallen off the wing. They've been loading the wing just to see how much, how much it could take, because you need to understand um, how much pressure uh, a wing can take, both from underneath and, and from on top. Um, so... Uh, and um, one of the things my student Tony has found, um, he was able to, he's been in touch with the Pinsent family, and they very kindly have shared um, their um, Pinsent's uh, correspondence with his mother um, with him. And there's this rather poignant letter where he writes in January 1917, please don't worry about me. Of course there's always a certain risk flying, but it's infinitesimal compared with what it would be if I were in the army. And when you think of the numerous people, like Thompson, that's G.P. Thompson, who have been observing for almost two years without a single accident, it must really be very small. The only risk really nowadays is something breaking whilst in the air. And then, sadly, Pinsent um, dies um, the following year. Um, and they were carrying out pressure tests on a plane, a plane similar to this one. This was a de Havilland 4. Um, and the tailplane failed. 
it broke in the air and, um, and, and he was killed. Um, so Frederick Lindemann, who I've mentioned, Vincent mentions Lindemann. Lindemann is um, on, the, on the back of, the, of uh, the motorbike. Apparently he never went anywhere without his bowler hat and umbrella, even when he was flying. He would go to the plane with the bowler hat and umbrella and hand them um, uh, to someone before he got into the plane. Um, and he says, the other day the great Lindemann discovered when up in the air piloting an aeroplane that his airspeed indicator was marked in knots and not in miles per hour. He hadn't the least notion how much a knot was, but he knew it was one sixtieth of a degree longitude at the equator, and he knew the radius of the Earth in centimetres, and he proceeded to work it out in his head whilst in the air. Um, and I mean, this was quite, uh, obviously, quite a feat of calculation, but it was sort of pales into insignificance um, when you learn that um, one of the other things that Lindemann did at this time, um, he was very interested in the problem of spinning. And um, it, this was a really serious problem. They were losing a lot of planes that, because they were going into a spin and the pilots didn't know how to get out of a spin. Um, in one month, um, in, in 1918, apparently, something like out of 106 crashes, uh, 40, 41 of them or something were, were due to spins. So trying to understand... Um, why an aeroplane spins and what you need to do to get out of a spin um, was really an absolutely vital problem. And so Lindemann had been observing planes in spins and he had worked out a theory about how to, to get out of a spin. And so at some point he decides he's going to go and test his theory. Well, this is kind of a brave thing to do, really. Um, so he, gets, he goes into the plane and um, goes into a spin and sure enough, his theory works. But while he's in the spin, he keeps in his head eight parameters because he needs this information to feed back when he's on the ground. And of course, when you're in a spin in a plane, you can't really start writing things down. So he, he kept in his head, he noted from the instruments and things, which again, the instruments I can't imagine would have been terribly stable anyway, the height of the entry of the spin, the height of the recovery from the spin, the airspeed, the number of turns he went into, the angle of the airflow either side of the wing, um, the yaw, that's when the, the, way, the way the plane's going like this, and the elapsed time. And he was doing these experiments um, with uh, Hermann Glauert. And Glauert, um, who has been described as a, a, a mathematician with unusual powers of verbal exposition, he really wrote his mathematics very beautifully, um, and was a very popular um, member of the, um, of the staff at the Royal Aircraft Factory. So it was a kind of combination between Lindemann up in the air, getting all the, the, the numbers, and then Hermit Glaut um, down on the ground um, doing the mathematics. Um, another um, person who was at the Royal Aircraft Factory was Barry Gates, and I've included him because... He's a sort of um, example he wrote himself about how he ended up there. He, he, he finishes at Cambridge. He, he's a Cambridge Wrangler, 1914, and he immediately signs up um, to go into the army uh, when war breaks out. And then he, this is uh, how he describes it. He says, after looking at my putties and certain other aspects of my military bearing under training, the army came to the correct decision about me. This man is no good for us. Let him go do the sums he's said to be good at. 
Um, and Gates uh, goes on, actually has a very distinguished career in aeronautics after, uh, after the war as well. And he works with, with Glowett on um, stability problems. And this was, as well as spinning the stability of the plane, this was another really crucial aspect and there was a mathematician I'm going to uh, say a bit more about called Brian, who'd written a book on stability and published in 1911 and uh, had really got the whole process going. But there was a lot to do. And so there are a lot of them working on the whole question of, uh, of stability and the control of an, of an, of an aeroplane. And this is uh, where Gates did some really um, important work. Um, and I liked this, this kind of quote about him where it says to, his lifelong quest was to carve a way through the inevitably harsh and complex mathematics of aeroplane motion to the shelter of some elegantly simple design criterion. Um, and, uh, so um, as well as the Royal Aircraft Factory, there was the National Physical Laboratory at Teddington. And so where at, at um, Farnborough, they were... Uh, designing planes, putting planes in the air. Um, at the National Physical Laboratory, they were doing experiments in wind tunnels. Now, the um, uh, laboratory had been founded in 1900. It was modelled on the sort of German uh, version of, of the sort of equivalent in, in Berlin. And um, they uh, decided that um, it was uh, sort of run by the Royal Society at this time. And it was... Um, decided that in, in 1909 they should have a department of aerodynamics and that this needed to be overseen um, by um, a committee. So the advisory committee for aeronautics was formed at the end of April 1909 with Lord Rayleigh as president, another Nobel laureate. Um, Greenhill, um, who uh, I mentioned at the very beginning, was on the um, committee uh, Lanchester, who is, uh, is an important figure in this story of, of the development of flight, um, and he certainly plays a part in the war, but I'm not going to be saying anything uh, more about him, purely because I can't talk about um, everybody. Um, Horace Darwin, we'll meet again, but Horace Darwin was um, the Cambridge Scientific Instruments Company, and he was the son of, of one of the sons of George Darwin. Um, so we have a bunch of really... Um, uh, significant people in this advisory committee for aeronautics and they were concerned about the possibility of invasion by, um, by air and particularly um, things went into slight overdrive after Blériot crossed the channel in 1909. So they'd formed this committee and then a few months later Blériot makes it across the channel and of course we hadn't had an um, invasion <laughs> from uh, foreign power since the Dutch had come up the Thames in the 17th century. So um, you know, so this was one of the things that was sort of behind um, the thinking. Um, and uh, as I've said, wind tunnels, what they were doing there was that they were simulating um, the effects of, uh, of, they had models and they were, had model planes and so on and, they were, and wings and so on and they were doing the experiments um, in, these, in these wind tunnels. The, the people there, again, uh, uh, Leonard Bairstow is probably is the sort of leading figure. He was um, a very influential um, mathematician, aerodynamicist, um, and he um, led uh, the aerodynamics department um, through till um, 1917. And um, the rest of the people here, all Cambridge Wranglers, um, strong mathematical backgrounds, um, and... 
Um, so, actually, so, so we've got basically we've got the two. Um, uh, let me just go back to that. We've got the two places where the work is being done, both at um, Farnborough and at the National Physical Laboratory. And what I should have mentioned here was there was quite a controversy between the two because they found that the results they were getting at the um, MPL didn't match the results they were getting at Farnborough. And they initially thought it was something to, it was a problem to do with scale. Um, and in fact, it turned out that they just hadn't allowed for the actual, the effects of the walls of the wind tunnels and the turbulence. Um, and um, and that, that caused quite, there was quite a lot of um, difficulty um, between the two. Now, the, Royal, uh, the um, Advisory Committee for Aeronautics also, they were, as well as being um, sort of overseeing what was going on at the MPL, they worked um, as a committee looking also at what was going on at Farnborough, and they worked as a, a connection between uh, the universities and industry as well. So they had a sort of oversight about what, of what, was, what was going on. So you've sort of got quite a, a mesh of, of, of things going on. So these are the people who are getting the planes in the air. So now we're going to look at the people who are shooting them down. Um, um, and um, as well as, as planes, of course, I mean, the big uh, sort of fear in the, in the war were the Zeppelins. And this is a letter from um, one of Carl Pearson's um, uh, assistants in his laboratory at University College. And he, she wrote to him saying... The whole of London is in a state of subdued excitement today as a result of the raid last night. We're all congratulating ourselves that we've seen a Zeppelin at last. A bomb fell in the centre of Queen Square. I was coming home in a tram just before 11 o'clock when the driver called out that there'd been a Zepp that had been fired at twice. Then the tram stopped and the lights went out, whereupon several women began to shriek. I got out, walked home to find all the neighbours in the street gazing heavenward. Nobody obeyed the instructions to seek shelter. We could see the flashes of the anti-aircraft guns, but they all went very wide of the mark. Um, now, of course, actually, I mean, see, the Zeppelin seems to be like quite a big target, but um, it wasn't so surprising that the guns weren't um, hitting the targets because up until um, the war, the First World War, ballistics had been concerned with um, flat fire. And so actually um, shooting up into the air at a moving object was, was, new, uh, was a whole new science. And this is um, what's, what we're going to see now. Um, and the, the people with the, with the guns needed uh, range tables. And there were range tables for flat-fire ballistics, but they weren't anti-aircraft range tables. And this is, um, uh, I rather like, this is a letter from Carey, who was professor of mathematics in Liverpool, to Sir Joseph Larmore, who was the Lucasian professor in Cambridge, and um, he writes to Larmore and he says, a gunner has written to ask me to solve a problem, the problem of sighting an anti-aircraft gun. And he says, as far as he can tell, it's quite a difficult problem, um, but he's got some mathematicians who might be able to solve it, but he can see that it's of really first-rate importance um, in view of the reconnaissance being done by aeroplanes at the front. And then he says, um, I hope you'll be able to press this important matter on the government and get a satisfactory set of tables for our keen-to-learn gunners. After all, we can't expect them to solve differential equations at the front. Um, so so there's, a, there's a pressing need for these, for these range tables. Um, and so in 1916, 
um, the anti-aircraft experimental section is formed. And it comes down through the Ministry of uh, Munitions, um, whose responsibilities included the development of air defences. And um, within the Ministry of Munitions, there was the Munitions Inventions Department, um, uh, who had one of the principal functions, was to investigate and experiment upon means for dealing with aircraft attack. And the two people who were really um, uh, the founders or who had the foresight to, to see what was needed um, were Horace Darwin, um, who was in the, um, on the Advisory Committee for Aeronautics, and Sir Alexander Kennedy, an electrical engineer. And they set about getting together um, a group of people. And the first thing they did was they thought, well, they needed to get somebody to run this outfit. And they very sensibly hit upon um, A.V. Hill. Now, Hill had been, um, he was uh, a physiologist, but he had done the mathematical tripos in, I think, about 1907, um, been a, a high wrangler, but he, he was a fantastic leader of men. He was incredibly diplomatic. Um, he clearly engendered confidence in those around him. He got people to do things from it. It was a really inspired um, choice. Um, and so what um, Hill has to do is he has to collect mathematicians to work for him. So the first thing he does is he goes off to see his old uh, tutor at Cam uh, Cambridge, G.H. Hardy, and um, to ask him to come and join um, his, his section. And uh, Hill recalls later, he says, when he's invited him to join, he says, Hardy replied once with indignation that he was not going to prostitute his brains on such a job. He was a pacifist, he protested, and was ready, if called to, serve in the army, but to prostitute his brains, no. Um, but Hardy didn't mind prostituting other people's brains because he um, uh, gave Hill the names of two other um, very promising mathematicians, R.H. Fowler, who was uh, recovering, he'd been uh, wounded in, uh, at Gallipoli, and E.A. Milne, who was a second-year undergraduate, both very uh, talented uh, mathematicians and who join um, Hill's group. And um, uh, a third person who, who joins is H.W. Uh, Richmond, who was a geometry don at, uh, at Cambridge. And it was with Hill at the top and with Fowler, Milne and Richmond, this was the sort of mathematical mainstay of um, what colloquially became known amongst them as Hill's brigands. And they were based um, after... Uh, and they didn't initially go there, but they ended up being based at HMS Excellent down in Portsmouth, which is where they were doing um, the experiments. So they were firing the guns, taking um, the data, um, and working out the theory. Um, and this was also being done in connection with people, some of the people at the, uh, the MPL. Um, Bairstow wasn't um, involved in this particular um, bit of work, but um, Gallup and Locke, both Cambridge men, uh, were. And then there was a very strong tie-in with um, Pearson's, uh, the biometric laboratory at UCL. So what was happening was that the mathematicians were down at, at HMS Excellent. They were doing the experiments. They were um, developing the theory. They were gathering the data. And then they needed all of that to be um, translated into range tables for, uh, for the gunners. And that's where the biometric laboratory came in. So uh, Carl Pearson, um, uh, um, I'll say a bit more about him in a minute. I should say what the functions of the um, 
uh, of the AAS art. So that what they, they, they were detailed to do, and it was all kind of laid out, that they were, uh, uh, part of their job was to construct uh, range tables and graphic range tables and investigate gun trials of fuse burning, effects of temperature, pressure and spin, and theoretical analysis of results. They also um, had some ordinary gunnery um, problems to look at, and also they looked at the investigations of problems connected with locating aircraft by sound. But the sort of mathematicians, so there's more physicists were involved more in these um, other, um, the second and the third bit, so I'm going to concentrate on the, on the first bit. Um, and... Um, uh, so what was the problem that they had to solve? Well, as I say, the difference was between firing up at a moving target and firing flat at an essentially stationary one. And if you're firing at an, a stationary target, then you just have to... You, you've got one thing that's important, the point of fall. You want to hit that target, but it, it's still. So you just know what the distance is and how, how you're going to angle your gun to fire it so it lands on your target. But when you're firing up in the air, you need to know every point of the trajectory. You've got two chances of hitting. You can hit it on the way up, you can hit it on the way down. Um, but you've got to have the fuse, um, when you're hitting your shells up, the, the fuse time is important because you need to know when the fuse is going to go off, so it's going to go off as it's, um, as it's um, hitting the target. Um, and it, it's a, a very complicated problem because it's, it's in, apart from anything else, you've got, you're working in three dimensions. You've got things like the wind, um, uh, can affect it. You've got varying air density, you've got the speed of the aircraft, the angle of the aircraft, how much it manoeuvres, the height. You've got visibility. We don't have radar in the First World War, so um, uh, it, it's a complicated problem. And, um, and so they break this problem down, it's bro broken down into sort of two, into a primary problem and a secondary problem. So you basically, you calculate the trajectory on the basis of certain assumptions and approximations. So, for example, you think about still air. But then you have to have correct for secondary problems things like the curvature of the earth um, and the rotation of the earth. Um, so it's, uh, it really is a complicated problem. And um, one of the issues, as we'll see, is that the people in the um, AAS had quite um, a job to convince the military that it was a difficult problem to solve. And um, so where they were doing this computation was, as I said, was at um, Pearson's um, at the Biometric Laboratory in University College, and they were producing these um, range tables. And um, the, a, there was a huge amount of, of calculation was required. So they had, Pearson had a bunch of nine calculating machines that were, were wearing away. He had a bunch of uh, people working for him. They were mostly either undergraduates, postgraduates, um, women were in, also involved. You can see this was the list of his staff in um, July 1917. And, and Pearson was one of the people who was very supportive of having women working with him, um, both not just only during the war, but even uh, before the war and after the war. And he published papers with, um, with women as, as co-authors. And this was very unusual uh, at this time. Uh, Pearson gets brought in... Um, in January 1917 to the AAS, but he had been, as soon as war had been declared, he immediately offered um, his services uh, to help with the war effort. And so he was involved in, he'd been involved in other things. He, uh, he'd done uh, sort of unemployment charts for the government, um, uh, tonnage, serial tonnage charts. He'd done, uh, worked on um, torsion to do with propellers for the uh, Royal Aircraft Factory and, and so on. Um, 
And uh, one of the important things that he recognized was that he could be much more efficient and it would be much more effective if he had his bunch of assistants working together, they worked together as a team and that you could actually, and he drew out charts of how you could get the work done in the most efficient way. Um, and this was something, when you see the correspondence, we're very fortunate, there's a very, um, a very rich Pearson archive. Um, and you can see he's all the time, he's wanting, he's telling the people um, in the ministry or whatever that it's important to keep his staff together um, so that they can work more efficiently. Uh, and of course, I think there's another thing slightly behind it. He wants also to have them all together for, for after the war um, as well. Um, uh, also connected um, with, with Pearson and with the AAS um, are uh, the people doing ballistics at Woolwich. And one of the people there is um, J.E. Littlewood. And some of you may well know, of course, Littlewood's name. Littlewood um, was uh, one of the leading math British mathematicians of the uh, first half of the uh, 20th century. And he collaborated with Hardy um, and probably one of the great uh, mathematical collaborations of all time. Um, and um, he, he, he signs up. He goes to the Royal Garrison Artillery and um, does important work on um, uh, devising a particular method for uh, the calculation of high-angle tra trajectories. Um, later on, after the war, Hardy rather sort of pithily says, well, even Littlewood could not make ballistics respectable, and if he could not, who can? Um, and this was in the context of Hardy being somebody who felt that he, with pride, felt that none of the mathematics he, he did was... Um, uh, of any practical use at all. In fact, it turns out he was very wrong about that um, because he did work in number theory, which has been very uh, important, influential in sort of cybersecurity and things. But um, uh, there, there was a sort of uh, a tension between them, I think, uh, at, at this time. Of course, their collaboration, which had only really just begun at the beginning of the war, their mathematical collaboration uh, went, on, went on hold, really, um, during the war. Um, but, but Littlewood was certainly um, made an important contribution. Um, uh, I mentioned calculating machines, and I found this was quite an interesting um, little uh, anecdote, really. Um, Pearson puts an advert in Nature, the journal Nature, because he's running out, his, his calculating machines are wearing out. And, of course, <laughs> not of course, but um, a number of them, most of them, are made, uh, were German. So he wasn't going to be able to get them replaced um, or mended. Um, so he puts, he puts this advert in Nature and says, look, if you've got a, um, a calculating machine you can let me have, you know, please could I use it for the duration of the war and I'll give it back to you afterwards. And it really won't have lost any value at all and you'll be doing something for the war effort, um, effectively. Um, and Arthur Schuster, who had been professor of physics in Manchester, um, but was now retired, was uh, fervently patriotic. He had German parentage, and he was very, very kind of conscious of that. And so he, um, if you uh, see about his career in the war, in the war he's working hard for the Royal Society and, and doing things. So he, it's sort of quite natural for him. So he says he's read the letter, and he's got this millionaire calculating machine. And then he says the difficulty to get it to London is it's a bit heavy, 72 pounds uh, for a calculating machine. Um, I think he'd be rather surprised if he saw what people had for calculating machines today. Um, but it was clearly it was a serious uh, problem. 
Um, so here's um, a part of a graphic range table, um, and this is just a small corner of it. The table itself is more like this, and I have actually got, if anybody's interested afterwards, I'm happy to show you. This comes from a book, um, a textbook of uh, anti-aircraft gunnery that was published after the war. Um, and this, uh, the book details the theory behind uh, the making of these tables. It has a number of these tables in it. But um, what you can see here, it gives curves of quad constant quadrant elevation, constant fuse, constant time. You can read off, depending on what information you have, you can, you can find out other information. But the thing was that you needed to have a, a lot of these tables because you needed to have them for a different table for each gun. You needed to have them for different fuses. So they, were, they needed to produce um, a lot of them. Um, But things didn't go all smoothly for the um, AAS. Hill writes to Pearson on uh, several occasions um, saying that they are having a bit of problems. And he says, with reference to your queries of the Bosch flying above 21,000 feet, only freak machines have been to heights of 24 and 25,000. And there's absolutely no reliable evidence that his machines are flying at these heights. Various incompetent people have turned long base height finders on the whole enemy squadron and probably got the opposite ends of the base on different targets. This is the, that is the explanation of these so-called heights of 24,000. They might equally, and probably do, get negative heights by the same means. The Bosch is not really a whit cleverer or more energetic than we are once we rouse ourselves from our peacetime lethargy. And then uh, a bit later he says, our work is largely educational, not merely scientific. Otherwise, we should get on five times as fast. The ignorant people at the head of things who continually fail to appreciate the urgency and the point of a new idea and the new instruments are a far worse difficulty than nature. Nature is easy to investigate, being merely inanimate and reluctant, but to persuade military officers of high standing to unlearn their prejudices and to give one, especially if one is a junior officer, the credit for knowing one's job is infinitely harder and requires tact and patience beyond understanding. It has taken a long time to persuade them to adopt height instead of range, and the urgency of it has made one perfectly sick sometimes of the whole show. So the, the point here is that the, the military were basically saying, look, can't you just use the, the range tables you have and push them through 90 degrees, you know, because you're firing up instead of this way. Um, <laughs> um, so, you know, they, they, they had a job on their hands, and they also, Hill had a job on his hands from the point of view of as the war progressed, um, uh, as, and as I'm sure you all know, um, uh, conscription came in and the, there really was um, a real pressure on getting as many people um, to, to sign up as possible. So the recruiting sergeants would come and knock on, on the door and um, it was for Hill was, was a past master at keeping them at bay and by being able to persuade them of actually the importance of, of the work um, that was being done. Um, um, and E.O. Uh, uh, Milne, um, he um, was really probably the youngest of, of the group here, and um, he had a correspondence with his younger brother. His younger brother was still at school, so he was writing to his brother and telling him about his experiences in the AES. And he occasionally went up in a, uh, in a plane, and, um, and he would describe being in a plane and looping the loop. And I'm sitting in the library, and I'm kind of reading these letters, and it's really quite um, amazing. And, of course, uh, one has to keep reminding oneself how novel 
um, flight was at the time. So actually to write a letter to your brother and describe what it was like to actually be in a plane was really something worth writing about. But he, at one point he writes, he says, the English officer is neither a mathematician nor a scientist, has an instinctive dislike for any method which will improve his shooting only on the case of being scientific and prefers to trust to luck. Bit by bit, we are taking control of the course of action away from the officer and putting it on instruments which work automatically. The responsibility then remaining on the officer is to keep his men thoroughly trained and to keep his instruments in adjustment. The latter he will wriggle out of if he possibly can. So um, they, they, fairly ha they obviously have uh, rather a dim view of, uh, of the officers. Um, but they, they did have um, success. Uh, Hill goes... Uh, to, to visit the, to the British Expeditionary Force in France, and he writes back to Pearson. And he says, I think you and your people would be really gratified if you could be out here for a few hours and see how your diagrams are regarded. I've seen several of the Army Group commanders and the officers at GHQ. They affirm without hesitation that these diagrams are invaluable and fulfill a long-felt want, that they are beautifully done and printed, and that people here are really grateful for these charts and that they spend a long time looking at them and so on, and they want to have a lot more of them. And then I think this is also it's very sort of telling. It says, please tell your people of this. So Hill wants Pearson to tell the, the human computers who are doing the calculators that actually the work they're doing is really being appreciated. And this is typical of Hill. He's always, he really is thinking of everybody who is working, working for him. And here we have, this is the textbook of anti-aircraft gunnery from which that range table came. And um, when I first, I first heard about the existence of this book in, an, in um, the obituary of H.W. Richmond, who's the editor. So I thought, oh, well, this will be just the thing I need for my research. So I cut off to um, the British Library to get it, only to find it's not there, or in the Bodleian, or in the UL at Cambridge, until, of course, the penny drops um, it was classified, so it's not in the copyright libraries. But um, uh, Aid Books comes to the rescue, and I found a copy of it in um, a bookshop in Winnipeg. Um, and um, uh, was very delighted um, to have it, and as I say, I'm, I'm very happy to show it to you, but it was a fantastic um, resource for me in this research. I mean, apart from anything else, it lists all these people who were involved in the book, and it, it details how they went about um, developing the theory, and actually the book was still, it was two volumes, it was used in, um, in the Second War as well. Um, but it was a, a really a huge um, undertaking. A few other people who weren't actually attached to the, um, uh, any of the institutions um, I want to just mention, particularly G.H. Bryan, he was professor of mathematics in Bangor. He'd been a, a, a Cambridge wrangler. He was a bit of a singular character, it has to be said. Um, but his book, uh, Stability in Aviation, was really um, important uh, work um, on, on which all kind of theories of stability of aviation were kind of started from here and grew out of this book. But the thing about Brian was that he was one of the few people who was canvassing all the time for mathematics within the development of uh, aeronautics. And as a quote from him, he regarded every aeroplane as a collection of unsolved mathematical problems. Um, he worked with um, Brodetsky um, with a, on a grant from the Scientific and Industrial Research, and, um, and that was, again, that was sort of new, putting money into this kind of research coming from 
um, from, uh, from the government, and he prepares reports of advisory committee for aeronautics. But one or two quotes will just give you an example of him. So he gives a Wilbur Wright memorial lecture in 1915, and one of the people who reports on this says, we've all heard lately the insistent cry, wanted more shells. That's the response to the artillery shell crisis of 1915. Those who would read his book, Stability in Aviation, and in fact, everything he's published on the subject as far back as 1897, would find that throughout his work, the insistent cry was to be found, wanted more algebra. Um, and then he, he often writes uh, columns in Nature and, and various places. And here he writes, when stability in aviation was in the press, fatalities occurred daily and killing off the pilots of unsafe machines was the only method that the practical man would have anything to do with. To evoke the assistance of a mathematician would have been an idea too terrible for words. And as for compensating him for his loss of time over this work, this might have cost 100, which would have been a preposterous waste of money when the same thing could be done by smashing up 10 machines costing £1,000 each. So... You know, he's really highlighting this kind of tension um, between the, the, ma the mathematicians and the, and the pilots here. And you, we find this, and these are just, these are just two of, of, of many, many quotes. But he does very valuable work. And one of the people he works with, um, Brodetsky, Brodetsky being senior wrangler, um, and he was a lecturer in applied mathematics in Bristol, and um, he collaborates with Brian. And Brian is, uh, puts an advertisement, um, again, in Nature, ask, looking for students to collaborate with him. He gets this money from the newly established, um, as I say, Department of Scientific and Industrial Research. And Brodetsky works um, with him. And, it's, um, and they work in Bristol. Bristol is where there's a, a, there is an aircraft factory there where the Bristol planes um, are, um, uh, are being made. And uh, later on, in 1921, Brodetsky uh, uh, publishes a book on uh, mechanical principles of the aeroplane. Glowert doesn't give it um, the best review, um, saying it would have been a good book six years ago. Brian, immediately on the defense, Brodetsky's his boy. You know, this is, Brodetsky is performing for aviation what Clark Maxwell accomplished in anticipation of modern electrical engineering. I think a little bit overblown on Brian's part. Um, but um, it's an interesting um, example of collaboration in the war that the war, the war brings about. Uh, women come into this story as well, um, a number of them. And again, uh, my student, Tony Royal, has actually has just uh, had a paper accepted um, on uh, the women who are working on um, uh, war war uh, problems in the war. One of the most important was, was Hilda Hudson. She comes from a real mathematical family. Her father was professor of mathematics at King's College London. Her mother had studied maths at Newnham. Her elder brother was, had been senior wrangler. Um, her uh, elder sister had um, also um, studied at Cambridge and had been equivalent to the eighth wrangler. So she has a real mathematical pedigree. She goes, um, after studying at Cambridge, goes to Berlin. And she um, ends up at the Admiralty Air Department um, doing um, important work there. And she, after the war, gets an OBE for her, for her work and publishes um, papers. Um, and we can see, I hope you can just see here. So these, if you look at the bottom, she does a paper on the strength of latriode struts. The blue ones, these are the struts, and you need to understand um, the loading on these struts. And then the incident wires and the wire, the incident wires are the two wires that cross these struts. The, the other wires on the plane are the landing wires and the, and the flight wires. Um, so, um, and there's a, a group of women who, who are involved in, in doing various, various things. Um, Co-breaking 
Code breaking is something that you might imagine um, uh, is done uh, by mathematicians in the war. Not at all. Um, uh, this uh, extract says, says, I should like to emphasize in this connection the importance of selecting the right kind of brain to do this research, i.e. code breaking, for research of this kind requires an active, well-trained and scholarly mind, not mathematical, but classical. Um, and during the war, there was, the code breaking was done um, somewhere called Room 40, uh, headed up by Sir Alfred Ewing. And um, he did have one uh, mathematician um, in the group, uh, who, someone who had been Professor of Applied Mechanics at uh, Greenwich, but in fact he was more interested in um, having him there for his ability with German. Um, and so that he was really keen to employ linguists. And of course, um, code making and code breaking was very different. They were using code books, not um, codes such as um, uh, uh, this kind of codes that were um, uh, used in the Second War with Turing and, um, uh, and so on. So it was, a, it was just a completely different, um, uh, a different problem. Um, and, and to kind of stress that, William Burnside, who was professor of maths at uh, Greenwich and actually was, is very well known in the mathematical community, he's the person who really brings group theory to life um, in Britain. And he, he writes to Larmore to say that he'd been in touch with Ewing to offer his services, um, basically, for, to... Um, uh, for the war effort, and, and Ewing had, had ignored him. And as he says, one recognizes in such times, present mere mathematics are pretty use, useless, I'm not much good with my hands, but there should be some way of doing something. And in fact, I, there isn't the kind of, um, I don't know exactly what happened, but, um, because we don't have Larmor's response, but um, uh, shortly afterwards, uh, uh, Burnside gets, um, Ewing gets in touch with um, Burnside, and he um, sets him to work on the problem of screw propulsion. So he goes into applied mathematics, where he's been doing pure mathematics. He, he'd actually done quite a lot of applied mathematics before he started on his working group theory. Um, but, um, but clearly, Ewing did not see that um, Burnside was somebody who would have been useful um, in the code-breaking scenario. So my final, um, sorry, I realize I'm getting very close to time. My final little section is about the mathematicians who didn't um, contribute to the war effort for reasons of conscience. And this was quite a surprise to me. I found that there were more of them than I um, would have expected and kind of probably proportionately in the population, more of them. And how I found out about them was through the diary of a Cambridge undergraduate, um, F.P. White, who was a conscientious objector. And his diary, he has a fantastically detailed diary, which is preserved at St. John's College, Cambridge, um, from the year, beginning of 1915 to the middle of 1916, when um, he ends up in the uh, uh, Friends Ambulance um, Service. But he's... Uh, he's right in the thick of, uh, of the sort of peace movements in the various uh, organizations. And we learn from his diary, he goes to um, Bertrand Russell's. And Bert, the story of Bertrand Russell is, is well known. Of course, he's imprisoned um, uh, for his uh, anti-war uh, sentiments and so on. And um, there's a, uh, a big to-do at Trinity College, at Russell's College, and um, uh, there was a memorial sent to the Council um, of Trinity because Trinity wanted to expel Russell for forever and a day. And um, 
And these were the fellows who said, no, they did not want uh, Russell to be deprived of his um, lectureship. And you can see from the, uh, here that the ones in red are the people who contributed to war-related research, and the ones in blue are the ones who were in some way um, connected with the, um, either being conscientious objectors. So it was kind of evenly split. And what you see when you look at the people who were really promoting Russell as uh, depriving Russell of his lectureship, it was the kind of older fellows of the college, and these are the younger fellows of the college. Um, but if you're interested in this particular story, Hardy in 1942, 1940, I can't remember, somewhere around about then, actually wrote a very uh, detailed account of the, whole, of the whole Russell affair, and it really gives in, in, uh, a lot of information, of, um, and it's been, it's been reprinted. Um, it's a really interesting um, episode. Um, but um, this is another story about Hardy that comes from White's diary. Um, and White reports in his diary that Hardy's published a tract, um, which indeed he had, with um, uh, Marcel Ries, who was a Hungarian. And um, he'd been writing letters to him, and one of Hardy's letters had been stopped by the censor because it had got mathematics in, and they thought it must be a code message. Um, and that because there was a German name in it, they felt that it was, um, must be something... Um, that shouldn't be allowed to, um, to, go, to get through the censorship. Um, so that's sort of another dimension. Um, and, and Hardy, uh, the, Hardy and Reese on the sort of front page of this book, they, they put this Latin, Latin phrase, the author's enemies and friends at the same time. Um, so um, Newman, Max Newman, very important figure in the Second World War, um, in the code-breaking story, um, and he writes to his chum, Harold Jeffries, saying he's become a conchy, conscientious objector, more or less, um, and he's seeking exemption um, from military service, but not from work of national importance. So you could, you could say you would be prepared to say, go and you know, do something, um, but, but you just didn't want to go to the front. Um, and in fact, he had German, his father was German, and he changed his name by deed poll um, during the war, um, from Neumann to Newman. Um, Two other figures, Ebenezer Cunningham. Cunningham was, um, uh, had been so horrified at the effects of the Boer War. He was a, a Quaker and, and a pacifist. He wrote the first book uh, to be published in England on relativity, and the war really broke him in a way. He, he, never did, he, did, he did really quite important work on, on relativity and things before the war, but after the war he did, he did very little. Eddington, um, Plumian Professor of Astronomy, um, very well known because of the uh, eclipse edition, uh, expedition in, after the war to, to test Einstein's theory of relativity. He was a Quaker. The university asked for exemption for him um, on grounds of national importance. They needed the observatory to keep running. Eddington at the tribunal said he wanted it also to go down, that he wanted to be um, exempt on grounds of, um, of conscience. Um, but the university didn't want that. They, they wanted him to be, um, so that, that they don't um, get him exemption for that, even though that's actually what, what, what he wanted. Um, but he does get exemption for a limited period, and luckily for him, the period was longer than the, than the war. Um, and then we have White himself, who I mentioned, who was the, the kind of source for a lot of this material. He, through the diary, you see, he comes up in front of five tribunals before eventually he gets... Um, uh, work with the Friends uh, Ambulance Service 
And, I mean, he's, at one point, he thinks he's going to go to prison. He's, he's, he's even worried about, he's told his friends that he's got books that need to go back to the library, and will they take them back, and, and so on. Um, so, and there's a bunch of, of, of mathematics students. And what's interesting is that in the diary, you see how um, it's not, there's such a difference between the intellectual atmosphere in Cambridge and the atmosphere for him at home in London. Um, he's, um, his parents really, they want him to give up his um, pacifist sympathies because they, you know, it's so frowned on and they, they're fearful for him going to prison, but he won't. I mean, it's a matter of conscience for him. Um, and, of course, there are the losses. We were lucky in Britain, really. We, the mathematicians didn't suffer anything like they did in France. The, in France, they lost the whole of a sort of generation from the Ecole Normale, Ecole Polytechnique, where went to the front. But one of the most poignant, I think, is um, Wakeford, who was, um, uh, who was killed in, um, uh, on the Western Front in 1916. And um, a mathematics paper was found in his kit bag. And it was published by the London Mathematical Society um, quite a long time after the war. But it, it, um, in the publication, it just says the, ma the manuscript ends here. There's no explanation because, of course, everybody would have known and understood. And Wakeford was the first person to have his obituary published by the LMS who wasn't actually a member of the LMS. And it, it ends with the sort of haunting words, he only needed a chance, but he never got it. Um, and he was clearly one of the most talented um, of, his, of his generation. Um, and uh, finally, this is um, a quote from uh, E.B. Wilson, who was a professor at, the, uh, at MIT, and he was saying um, how important the English mathematics was um, for um, the development of, of aeronautics. And, um, and he, was, he was actually running courses at MIT for the military in aeronautics. Um, and um, so he's, he's making the point here that actually Cambridge mathematics is um, this grounding that all the, all, practically all these people that I've mentioned had their grounding in Cambridge um, and, uh, and had done the mathematics tripos. Um, and so what was the effect of the war? Well, we have people like Hardy moves from Cambridge to Oxford partly due to the treatment of Bertrand Russell. That's not the only reason, but that's part of the reason. We get chairs of, of aeronautical engineering and aviation. Women, the role of women, women gets changed dramatically during the war, not just, obviously not just mathematicians, but, but in general. We get people's careers um, changed completely. Milne and Fowler, two people who were absolutely set on um, careers in pure mathematics, go um, into applied mathematics. Um, Glowis and Gates, who were um, at Cambridge, both stay at the Royal Aircraft Establishment, make uh, careers in aeronautics. Neville was one of the people who supported um, Bertrand Russell and was well-known um, pacifist. Um, he, it was felt that he didn't get his job renewed at Cambridge because of that. Um, Douglas Hartree, I haven't mentioned before, but he, is, he was an important figure in computation. Uh, Barnes, another supporter of Russell, he left mathematics for the church. Um, and Cunningham, I mentioned, ceased um, research. And, of course, we have um, the losses. Um, and finally, um, this was a, a funny diagram. Um, so there's a pastiche of uh, Egyptian hieroglyphics. I don't know if you can see it, but um, uh, it's uh, finding the central gravity of a Tarrant table. This was this uh, enormous uh, triplane that was, uh, had a very short life, actually. It didn't... 
Um, it, it, it crashed on its first, um, first flight. But you can see, you probably can see it in the middle there. Um, and in fact, there are people from um, the Royal Aircraft Factory who are actually uh, noted on the diagram. It was drawn by somebody at the Royal Aircraft Factory during the war. So we can see Glowett and Gates and, and Southwell there. Um, and you see the plane in the middle with, the six, um, with its six engines and so on. Um, and that's the end. Thank you, June. So, we have some time for questions. Uh, there should, I think, be a roving microphone. And uh, it would be appreciated if you waited until the microphone got to you for the purposes of the recording. Okay, who has any questions? No? Yes, right at the back there. Wait, 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 wait for the microphone so we can all hear you. Yep. I'd just like to ask you, as someone who's a non-mathematician, if the gentleman E.A. Milne was related to A.A. Milne, the author? Um, not to my knowledge. Okay, thank you. It's just one of those things I'd like to find out. Thank you very much. And also at the back there. Thank you. Um, I'm curious to know, not having gone to a um, London or Oxbridge University, what was going on in the and the other universities, and in particular in the northern one, ones in Scotland, and what contribution did they make to the war effort? Um, well, of course, this was a period when there weren't um, many universities, actually. I mean, there were colleges and, and so on. So um, at the beginning of the war, we had the London universities, Oxford and Cambridge, the Scottish universities, the um, uh, Manchester, Liverpool, Leeds. There were, there were people there, most, uh, quite a number of the people who were professors in those universities had been Cambridge trained. Um, so the, this was a period when it was just the beginning of, um, as I say, the, those sorts of universities. So some of the people had come, um, there were people um, who had been working in some of the other universities who, uh, who ended up um, doing uh, various things. But it, it was so different to how it is today in as much as the universities then you'd have had one professor and one assistant or something somewhere like Liverpool or, or, or whatever so you would not have had to start where the big concentrations of mathematicians were were in Cambridge, London Oxford had had a number of mathematicians but it didn't have um, the, the I mean if you wanted to study maths at that time then Cambridge was where you wanted to be um, so um, the other place where actually a number of these people did, um, were educated, um, which I sh should have mentioned really, was um, Imperial College. So people like Bairstow and Lanchester and things had um, uh, studied there. And Imperial College only came into existence in about, sorry, somebody else, about 1909 or something. It was a kind of amalgamation of a bunch of colleges, um, of, of the Royal College of Science and um, Central Technical College and things. So that was a sort of technical thing. And there was always a feeling, I mean, like Lanchester always, I think, felt, because he wasn't a Cambridge man, he felt he was a bit of an outsider. There was a, a certain tension there, I think. Um, does that answer? <laughs> I think you mentioned Professor Wedderburn from Edinburgh was... was yeah, oh, yes, yes. He was in the, yeah, he was in the uh, anti-aircraft gunnery mm -hmm. book, yes. Okay, question back here. Do you have any um, 
kind of comparative evidence about the contribution of these mathematicians versus, say, people who were in the military um, developing aircraft and developing machines? So what was their relative contribution compared to other people in the field? Um, well, I, I think that the, um, they, they were the people who were doing the theoretical work. So when you look and you see what um, actual developments there were, were made, how the, you know, they developed the planes to be bigger and, and more stable and so on, there's a bunch of reports that get produced um, the, by, the, um, by the committees and you see these reports all being written by the people either at the MPL or at, or at Farnborough. Um, and um, so I think that the, there, was, there was, as I've mentioned, this real sort of tension between the, um, some of the military in terms of not really understanding what was required. Um, and it tended to be, dare I say it, it's, it would seem that the army were, were more guilty of this than the navy. Um, they, they, got more, they got a more sympathetic um, hearing from, from, the, from the naval officers. Um, but uh, but I, think, I think if you were in the military at that time, I would guess that you felt that your, your job was actually being a soldier. Um, and, um, and, and there were clearly, there were people who felt, I mean, like Wakeford, who, who, um, who, who was killed, I mean, someone who had something really to offer in a scientific sense, but felt that his was... Um, was at the front and Fowler actually I think it was just sheer luck really that he ended up because because he was wounded at Gallipoli um, he, he ends up at, um, and then has a very very um, significant career after the war actually kids gentlemen here um, Sardro thank you very interesting talk um, one of the most striking things about uh, this period is that there was no evidence of um, mathematical modeling, uh, decision-making under uncertainty, what, uh, of course, we know as operational research that developed during the Second World War. Um, the emphasis in the period you talk about is on um, applied mathematics, engineering, uh, ballistics. Uh, very good work was done there, but um, it, I wonder why... Um, the other aspect, modeling, decision-making, didn't come to the fore during that period. And uh, was it, in fact, uh, was the omission a, a lost opportunity? Well, possibly. I think, I mean, Hill, actually, I, th I think is somebody who's quite um, uh, important in the sort of development of operational research later on. I mean, when they, because he gets pulled back in again in, in the, for, the second, for the second war. And, and the, sometimes when you see, people will write about the things that were, were being done with the uh, AAES and the, um, the, the, there was a sort of um, almost, the sort of embryonic, um, element of, of operations research in the way that they um, carried out their work and, they, they, what, what, and what they did. Um, but I, I don't know, really. I think I, and one of the things I do think does come over very strongly, really, is how slow we were in actually recognizing the significance of, of science in general. And that's, you know, you, you see that quite, you know, that is written about quite a lot. And, and it might have been Blackett who said uh, during the Second World War, um, I think we're paying too much attention to building the machines and not paying enough attention to how we use them. Mm. 
Yeah, so maybe, so maybe that would <laughs> sort of, yeah. Um, because, yes, I think at the beginning of the war, I mean, we were considered to be really quite behind with certain things. Um, so, yeah, so I can see that the, the pendulum would swing the other way. Um, so my question is, how much is this part of science in general in the war? I mean, I guess there must be physicists and, I mean, and, yeah, and, yeah, and, and yeah. chemists studying explosives and so on. Is this, I mean... Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm just, this yeah. is a, a partial picture. I mean, I've just been interested in seeing... I was interested to see what mathematicians... I was, um, you know, my curiosity was piqued, really, because of uh, thinking, well, knowing what mathematicians did in the Second War. Um, but, of course, at places like... Uh, both at the MPL and at Farnborough, I mean, there's a bunch of people doing, um, you know, physics, physicists and chemists and... Um, uh, working on all, you know, all sorts of things, obviously materials and, um, exactly, yeah. Yeah, and structures and, and, and um, yeah, I mean, there's a, a lot of, of, of physics and, and chemistry and things going on. I mean, so, the, so this was very much just, I just wanted to try and see if I could understand what, what mathematicians were doing. And I think the thing that was striking was the fact that they weren't mobilized in the way that um, the people didn't see how, how mathematicians could help. So they, it sort of, they, they kind of came in through the back door to a certain extent. And did it generally improve the standing of science in, in the UK? Oh, yeah, and I think, well, I mean, you see that newly uh, formed, they formed the Department of Scientific and Industrial Research. And, thing, and I think, you know, things definitely changed from the point of view of, as I say, that, you know, in academic terms, the sorts of things that were being taught and the, and the chairs, you know, those chairs of aer aeronautics and, and so forth. I think people recognized then that we actually we needed to, to get more up to speed and to have uh, mechanisms whereby people could be brought up to speed. Thanks June, very nice talk. Um, in response to the, the question about the operation research, I think the point is that that was all part of general ideas about um, systems thinking and in, in the end socio-technological systems um, which came about in a later period and the OR was part of all that was coming together at that point. But my question is, I was very intrigued to find your reference to um, the cryptography and the need to get some good old classicists rather than mathematicians, which of course reminds us of the whole of Bletchley Park. Is, is that the first time, do you know, that people have said, actually, these are the people that we want to, to help us break codes? It's not necessarily the mathematics, it's the logical thinking. Yeah. Um, I don't I mean, I was, I was very struck by that um, remark, too. Um, and... Um, I, I, I haven't researched into sort of code breaking and, and things, but I did expect to see some mathematicians being brought in that people would think that that was a, 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 the logical thinking of, of, of code breaking. And one of the things that struck me also was that they, um, what was clear was that you can see that they, they, they don't, they realize that they're, they're breaking codes and they don't sort of see the, the kind of relationship between sort of breaking codes and making codes is sort of where the mathematician would think about inverses and, and the, the little bit I've read is that you can see that that isn't going on that they, they don't see that the fact that they're, they're breaking the German codes then you know so um, uh, but it, it is and I mean the, the linguists were the ones that they really wanted um. okay. uh, front row please yeah The basis of your 
talk was mostly centered around World War One, and you mentioned that you did a bit of research on World War Two. How much exactly of the research, uh, how much exactly of the work um, done by mathematicians uh, in World War One carried on to producing? more work during World War II? For example, you mentioned range tables and volumes. Of yes, so, so I mean, this, this particular um, book that I mentioned was, was used in, um, in uh, World War II, and, and certainly a number of the, the mathematicians, the young mathematicians who were involved in things in, um, in the First War went on and did uh, work in the Second War. Um, but So someone like Max Newman, um, who, was, who didn't, you know, he actually... Um, was a sort of effectively a conscientious objective, not a, st- a strong one, but, but you know, when uh, did his code, did, it was very important in the code breaking in the Second War. Um, so I, I think that um, there was a recognition, I mean, the, diff- the difference was that they could see that there, were, there was a use for mathematicians in the Second War, which they hadn't recognized in the First War, and I think that's, that's, the, that's the big change, it seems to me. Um, whereas I think the Germans on the, on the, uh, on the other hand, had recognised that. And that's one of the things that Greenhill's saying, look, you know, they, 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 they think that you know, people should know that mathematics is important in, in, in all its spheres. Gentleman in blue. Hello. Um, I was just wondering whether any useful uh, understanding came from German pilots who might have been, uh, you know, might, might have been asked to help or somehow or another you know, gave, gave um, assistance having been captured? Um, I, that's not something I've... I haven't heard... I haven't come across any reference to that at all. I mean, certainly you do see... Um, I mean, they, I think when German planes crashed, they, they certainly picked over the bones of them to find out what was, you know, um, as much as they could. But, and there was also with a lot of the work that was being done, it was classified um, too, the, math- the work the mathematicians were doing, um, as well as th- that textbook, but various things. So there was definitely a lot of secrecy about um, the particular, particularly the development of air power. Um, but I haven't come across any examples of, of, of German pilots. Well, and of course, I don't know to what extent the pilots would actually have had the technical knowledge anyway um, they probably would not. I mean, they, their, their job was to fly the plane, um, I would imagine. So. Right, thanks. Uh, any further questions? Yes. Back here. Yeah. This is a formidable effort of organization of science, of research. I wonder what happened when the war ended. Was it... Uh, transferred to science research councils or any other form of organization? Sorry? Yeah, the, the effort that was uh, put into the development of all these uh, exercises, yeah. uh, when the war ended, was it transferred to science research councils or Well, to... I mean, certainly what happened with um, a number of the people involved in the anti-aircraft experimental section, like Fowler and Milne and things, they carried on doing... Um, research on particularly things like the dynamics of spinning shell and things. So, and papers were published in things like the Philosophical Transactions of the Royal Society. So they, they did carry on with some of that research after the war. Milne and Fowler and Richmond, you know, a bunch of them carry on doing things. And, of course, um, a number of people like Glowert, 
who stayed at the Royal Aircraft Factory. And so before the war, I don't think they had really thought of having mathematics, somewhere like the Royal Aircraft Factory, which was then the Royal Aircraft Establishment, I don't think they had really thought of having sort of resident mathematicians before. And so, so I think that is what happens. And also some of the collaborations that happen um, with uh, Berry, who was a mathematician from Cambridge, who, who collaborates with, um, with people at the uh, Royal Aircraft Factory. I mean, he continues that after the war and, and things. So I think those sort of, some of those connections and networks um, certainly continue. Okay, I think we have one, one last question from Sadra back. Thank you. I, I happen to live in Kingston, which has got a rich heritage in uh, aircraft construction dating back to 1908 or 1909, something like that. And it only finished in my lifetime maybe 20 or so years ago. And, and thousands, if not tens of thousands, of planes were, were constructed there. Now, to, to what extent were, were Sopwith and his team just getting it right through skill or intuition or, or whatever? And to what extent did they... There need a, or rely on yeah. input so there, from yes. the mathematicians you talk about. Yeah, so there was, yeah, there was, um, uh, as I said, it, it was really a misnomer that it was called the Royal Aircraft Factory. So they were definitely, there was this connection between them and um, um, getting the, the theory out to the, in, in, within industry. Um, but I think within, and, and there are certainly examples of some, some of, the, of the mathematicians you know, ending up in, in industry, working for um, different um, uh, manufacturers. I mean, there were quite a lot of these small manufacturers around. I was quite surprised when I looked to see, you know, all these planes that were being made and the different names that they had and the different people, um, the different companies that were, were building them. So, um, so I think that there was... I mean, I haven't looked at all, I have to say, at industry to look and see the people who were working within industry, how, what sort of mathematical engineering training they had. Um, but, um, but, but sort of no one's risen to the surface in that respect, if, if you like. But that's not to say there are, you know, they aren't there, but there was certainly... They, the Royal Aircraft... I mean, they needed the planes. They needed someone to make the planes. So they were definitely... That information was, was, was going out to, to industry. Okay, well, uh, thank you very much, June, for a really stimulating talk. Very, very interesting indeed. Thank you.